Welcome to This Much I Learn, Marketing Week's monthly podcast in which we invite the great and good in marketing and beyond to impart their wisdom and perspective on marketing matters. My name is Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week, and I am your host for this episode. My guest today is Tom Fishburne, or as you might know him, the Marketoonist. After a career in the marketing trenches, including notable stints in CD positions at the likes of Method and General Mills, Tom launched his alter ego, the Marketoonist, for the amusement of his co-workers 20 years ago. His cartoons didn't stay a private joke between colleagues for long, however, two decades on, and his weekly missives on the fads in marketing and follies of marketers now reach hundreds of thousands of people a week via his blog and in presentations and keynotes globally. And when he's not doing that, he speaks as himself on the need and advantage of using humour in marketing and business. To discuss 20 years of the marketoonist and what inspires his work, welcome to the podcast, Tom Fishburne. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you, Russell. It's a pleasure to have you join us for uh, this, as I say, the 20th anniversary of the marketoonist. Now, despite your work being ubiquitous in the marketing world, your moniker, the marketoonist, is better known perhaps than the man behind his work. Does it help to have a, an alter ego? In a way, it does. Uh, thinking of it as an alter ego was a bit accidental, actually. The first eight years I was drawing the cartoon, I actually used a different, a different uh, title. I, I called it Brand Camp. And it was really when I made the launch to do it full time that I started to think about what it was that I did and what I wanted to do. And Marketunis kind of came to me as this, a bit of my own job title, <laughs> so to speak. And, uh, and over time, it's become a bit of an alter ego, a bit of a moniker. And I have found it useful. I, I think this is true for a lot of creative people, but when you create something, it's often very personal and it can help to detach it from who you are as a person. So when I get feedback on a cartoon, whether people really like it or whether they, they don't, I don't think they're commenting on whether they like me or don't like me. <laughs> so it helps to have it as a, as a bit of a, a detached creative exercise so that I usually publish each week's cartoon on a Sunday morning. I can publish it and then close my laptop and go sit with my family and not wonder too much about how the world feels about, about me, but instead, uh, instead sort of let it go. So that's been kind of fun. And over time, I love hearing back from people that they say, I think the marketunist has been eavesdropping on me in my workplace or my conference or whatever, and, and that it's this generalizable capturing of what's happening in the marketing world and putting it into cartoons. I suppose the relative anonymity then does sound like it does help and also helps you compartmentalize between that and uh, and everything else. We should all adopt one. Um, but let me take you back uh, before we get into some of your inspirations and how you come up with your work. Let's discuss your origin story. Where did it all begin? Where did the marketunist start? It started in a large organization, General Mills. I was a new associate marketing manager, a uh, very hierarchical place. I loved working there, but there was plenty to sort of make fun of in just the daily trenches of marketing. And I found myself with a lot of other friends who were all starting at the same time. Uh, General Mills, like a lot of big uh, consumer packaged goods companies, tends to hire in classes. And so there were 35 of us who were brand new trying to figure things out. And I had done a, a cartoon in business school and I thought there's so much rich material here. I'll just create in a cartoon and offer it up to my class if they want to sign up for it. And it'll just be a way to capture a little bit like a diary, our collective journey of starting out working in, in marketing. 
And uh, I didn't have any grand expectations for it. I just thought I could I could make all of us laugh a bit together at what we were all sort of facing and going through. And then it started to catch its own momentum. And suddenly people were signing up from a lot of other companies and around the world. And I started to get emails from people about the stories of what was happening at their organizations. And I realized that there is a, a real commonality. And there was a lot that I liked about the communal aspect of, of figuring this all out together. Um, so it started October 2002, as I was sitting in a cubicle on the fourth floor in this building in Minneapolis, Minnesota for General Mills. I like what you were saying there about community. Well, you're like the person on the inside saying the things that many marketers would like to say, sharing the experiences that they would like to share, but are unable to out of, I don't know, fear of career consequences. Is that the way it feels to you sometimes? It does. And it, it felt a bit like that then. A lot of my coworkers thought I was crazy to do it and to have my real name attached to it. They thought that I would be fired for it. it you know, that crossed my mind a few times because I, I decided early on that I wasn't going to hold back. I didn't want to have a poison pen. I, I tried. That's not the type of humor I tend to gravitate to. But I, I also didn't shy away from, from picking up on something in a meeting we were all in with senior leadership team members present and poking fun a little bit about what we were talking about. I realized early on that I wanted to have the ability to find humor in uh, those types of situations and not self-edit too much. And so it was that type of effect. There was this expression, at least at the time when we were all in, in cubicle environments, they, they, they would call it prairie dogging when something would happen and everybody's heads would sort of pop over the, the cubicles like prairie dogs and talk about it. And I used to send out my cartoons during the, uh, the workday. And uh, that would happen. I would set out a cartoon about something that had just happened in a meeting the day before and the heads would pop over and everybody, you know, we'd laugh about it. And somebody would say, you might get fired for that one. I used to draw a character that looked very similar to one of the vice chairmen of the whole company, but I didn't get fired. And in fact, the chief marketing officer who was many levels above me at the time ultimately invited me for lunch to get to know me better because he'd come across the cartoons and really liked them. And he, and he encouraged me to, to keep doing them. That gave me permission, a little bit of permission to myself to not hold back. <laughs> but I also always tried to do it from the sense of not somebody who knew better, but somebody just trying to figure it out. Because usually if I'm poking fun at anything in the cartoons, it's usually, usually myself. It's usually something I'm struggling with as I'm trying to adapt and evolve. Yeah, I mean, you didn't get into trouble on that occasion, but has it ever landed you in any kind of bother? Somebody recognising themselves or a situation that they would rather keep or have kept in the four walls of the office that they were in? I tried to always be very careful not to uh, not to explicitly call out anything to the point that I would be uh, divulging company secrets or anything. But but yes, there were a few characters. There was one manager in particular who warned me at the start when I was newly on his team and he discovered I had this cartoon. He said, if I ever end up in a cartoon, you'll be fired. I ended up just saving up a whole bunch of material. And when I moved on to another company, I had a backlog of material to, to work for. Um, <laughs> he was a good sport, ultimately. Uh, but you know, I found myself after that at another organization where I, I shared that story with one of the founders. And he said, well, if I don't end up in a cartoon, Cartoon, you'll be fired. So for me, it became a bit of a barometer for the type of work environment I felt comfortable in. If I felt like I could show up and bring my true self to work, and as long as, I, again, like I wasn't being mean-spirited about it, um, you know, I, I felt like that was a good pulse check on whether it was the right environment for me. I was going to say, I imagine you get people lobbying to have their likeness evoked in one of your cartoons nowadays. 
I don't hear it as much in my regular weekly, but I get a lot of commissioned work. And much of my commission work is, is my real my real business. I've worked with 200 organizations now on custom cartoons that are used as marketing campaigns. But an unexpected sideline has been to draw executives explicitly in situations, executives who've been reading my work for years. And when they retire or move on to another business, their team contacts me and asks if I'll draw them into, into a cartoon. Uh, interestingly, uh, the chief financial officer of General Mills, who I never even met while I worked there, he was in an entirely different wing of the building and they wore suits and ties over there and we didn't. It was very hierarchical. In later years, he contacted me and we've since become good friends. And he has a whole collection of cartoons, several with him drawn into them uh, as sort of a fun, a fun sort of commission. Is your motivation to make people laugh primarily or is it to lay bare some of, I think I use the adjectives fads and follies uh, in my introduction, or is it equal measure? I'd say my primary goal is to make people laugh and to make people laugh uh, at ourselves, not uh, at each other or at something else. I like it to be communal. I like it to be um, this communal aspect of laughing together at something we're all trying to, to go through. I found over time that's what fills me up the most when I lean toward humor in that direction. But part of that exercise involves looking at the fads and follies of what's happening because I think sometimes in marketing, in business in general, we can take ourselves very seriously if we're not careful. I, I feel like there's a role to kind of pop the bubble, so to speak, and to point out when the emperor has no clothes as a way to laugh together at, at how there could sometimes be a, a bandwagon effect on certain things or, or how we're approaching marketing. We might be, we might be uh, not have as open a mind as possible. And humor can be one of those great levelers. It allows us to laugh at ourselves, but also allows us to talk about uncomfortable truths in a way that's not so uncomfortable. So I like all aspects of the way that humor can help with those things. But I guess the great unifier for me and a filter that I think about whenever I, I play with ideas is a filter making sure that I'm, that I'm ultimately laughing at myself, not as much on a poison pen. And it's a different, you know, there are many cartoonists approach, approach topics in different ways. Editorial cartoonists, for instance, can sometimes be more on the poison pen than the, the spectrum. I always like the, uh, the laugh the, as the bonding part. Who do you admire? Do you is there a cartoonist uh, that you uh, that you take inspiration from yourself? I have so many heroes. <laughs> I have a lot of heroes that I, that I grew up with as a as a child. Gary Larson and The Far Side was probably my my penultimate hero in that mold. Uh, the absurdist humor and the single panel cartoons. I love all the New Yorker cartoons. I loved the opportunity I had to live in England and discover the great legacy of British cartoonists. Probably one of my greatest heroes just passed away in the last year, uh, Jean-Jacques Sampé, who was a French cartoonist. He drew a lot of covers for The New Yorker, and he had a great ability to convey humor, often without any words, he, sort of pantomime cartoons, they call them, where there's just a situation that's intrinsically funny in how it's drawn. Um, and I remember discovering his work in, in Paris 20 years ago, and it had a huge impact on me. Uh, just how to how to find levity in situations as an observer and to essentially use a cartoon as a way to hold up a mirror to an audience so they can see themselves in the cartoon and then see the world around them through the cartoon 
and find a connection to it. It, it became sort of a gold standard for me of how, of how uh, cartoonists and cartoons can work when they're at their best. And on that, is it a craft? Are, are there elements that make it work? Do, do certain things need to be in play? Yeah, there are. It's, very, it's a very simple medium, which is one of the things I love about it. Basically, anybody who can draw stick figures can create something that works as a cartoon. And as we've seen with the explosion in memes, putting words and pictures together is something that we all innately do as humans. There is a craft to cartooning that, you know, I've learned different elements over time and it's a lifelong pursuit. At various times I get better and I understand certain things in, in practicing and learning by doing. There's some fundamental things, like in many parts of the world, people look at a cartoon from left to right. So thinking visually that the punchline or the visual humor is on the right-hand side, there's things like that. There's a lot around the simplicity of the image. And I found over time in my own work, I try to take out ex extraneous material. I used to overdraw a lot of cartoons early on, and now I try to really zoom in on, on what the punchline is. And there's, of course, the aspect of how you actually draw it. But one of the things I love about the accessibility of cartoons versus something like a painting is that sometimes the simpler the better and, and the, the clumsier and the cruder the better. I'm by far not the best or draft person in the cartooning profession, but it, uh, it helps in some ways make cartoons more accessible if, they're, if they look like they were cast off, even though I might have had multiple, multiple versions of a simple squiggly line to get the smile right. <laughs> and I find over time the cartoonists who I admire who have some of the simplest uh, executions of cartoons um, uh, often, often uh, it's deceptively simple. They often put a tremendous amount of upfront work to get to that place of simplicity. So that's sort of the craft I've tried to learn over time just by studying other cartoonists. Have you ever had a cartoonist block, if that is an actual thing? Have you ever sat down and thought, I've got no idea what I'm going to do this week? Because you do it every week and you have done, as I mentioned at the top, for 20 years. I do. It's a common thing. I think a creative profession generally um, is is staring at a blank sheet of paper and feeling like you have nothing. And I've learned over time that that is uh, not a condition as much as it's a state, a stage in the creative project. And so for me, initially when I was just drawing one cartoon a week and I had a day job, it was actually quite easy because I would hear enough over the course of a week to come up with an idea but now that in addition to my weekly Marketunas cartoon, I have so many client projects that are creative. I have my output has to be so much higher. I've had to get much more structured in my creative process. And I found over time that there's a stage where I'm staring at a blank sheet of paper. And as long as I have that far enough in my deadline and I don't put the pressure on myself to look at the blank sheet of paper and expect a cartoon to emerge, but instead I look at the blank sheet of paper as a place to just play with ideas and that that's just the state of the process. It's just a doodle. If I do that for a period of time and then I take whatever little scraps and doodles I came up with and stick them in a folder and then I come back and look at those the next day, suddenly things start to pop out of those squiggles and doodles that make sense to me. And then I put it away and I come back to it in an iterative fashion for a few days. I, I have enough confidence now in the process that by day three or four or five, there's some cartoon in there that I can turn into something. And I found um, over time, you know, that's the greatest solution to cartoonist block is just to dedicate um, a couple of hours of every single day, almost like exercise to the, to the practice of coming up with ideas 
without too many expectations on what the output is of any particular session. And if I do that every day and I exercise that creative muscle, the results I've seen over the last 20 years is that I'll always have something to publish. But if instead I get too busy and suddenly I need something funny in an hour, then I struggle. <laughs> and so I think there's something I've learned. I think I, I, think I, t I now take that practice into the rest of my work life, actually, is to make sure I have some of that dedicated deep work time in my schedule, that I have meetings and everything throughout the day, but that I have this precious, sacred block of time to purely uh, think in a nonlinear fashion about deeper issues that I'm working on in the business. I feel like that's, uh, it's more important than ever in the cluttered world we all work in. I need to carve out that time and be deliberate about it. It might be that, but is there anything that you've learned in doing what you've been doing for 20 years, uh, the creative process that you wish you'd know when you were a marketer, that marketers listening to this might be able to learn from? Yes, I mean, certainly the creative process is one. Another, another thing that I've had to learn over time is just feeling comfortable sharing something with colleagues or the outside world. Um, without worrying too much about how it will be received. I think, I think early on in particular, I self-edited too much. Sometimes uh, it was paralyzing. Um, you know, if you use the example of a presentation, I feel, which a lot of marketers create a lot of presentations, I feel like sometimes in the marketing world, when we share ideas, we want it to be a perfectly polished presentation that we've practiced and rehearsed and shared ad infinitum before we feel comfortable standing up and sharing the idea. And I feel like that's ultimately not as great for the organization because by the time you get to that point, a lot of the interesting stuff happened at the beginning when it was when it was back of the envelope. I've learned over time because I, I every week I have to put something out there, whether or not I think it's funny. It's the old there, there's a, the television show in the United States, Saturday Night Live, where it's a, every every week there's there's a, a, a you know a show they put out and the. the the quote I heard from that is, we don't go live when we're ready. We go live when it's 1130 on Saturday night. And so I have to do that with my cartoons, whether or not I have doubts about how it's going to be received. And I've had to learn over time just to put it out there. And then things come back and often in unexpected ways. And so the self-editor in me, I've tried over time to just to just push to the side and feel comfortable sharing with colleagues and others ideas that aren't fully thought out and give myself permission to do that. And I find when I do that, and I've worked in some organizations where that's been encouraged, generally it leads to more creative thinking across the board. People feel more comfortable letting their guard down and sharing something that's, this isn't fully baked, but it's just a back of the envelope sketch. And if organizations feel more comfortable sharing ideas that way, rather than fully baked PowerPoint presentations, you get much more organizational creativity going. So that's something I've tried to bring into different leadership roles. I've had opportunities even after making the change to drawing cartooning full-time, to consult with organizations, um, sometimes even, even lead teams and organizations on a, on a project basis. And it's something that I've tried to cultivate as a leadership skill. How do I make everybody uh, on an extended team feel comfortable sharing ideas when they're not fully baked? Because that's where a lot of the fun, interesting stuff is. What does success look like? When do you know you've absolutely nailed it? I do look at metrics, how cartoons are shared, and that can be useful in some dimension, but it can also it can also lead me a bit astray. <laughs> I know if I draw a cartoon about social media, that that cartoon is going to do better on social media metrics because that's what people are sharing. The ones I actually really love where I feel like there's success in a cartoon is when I hear from people that 
a particular cartoon help them uh, in what they're doing in their work, either sharing something with their own manager, they're struggling with something in the cartoon, they can, they can share and it helps them communicate what they're trying to work on, or a cartoon that helps validate how they've been feeling and haven't really felt comfortable. Uh, you know, they thought they were the only ones. And, and so when I get, I get emails back from people or, or uh, you know, like social media direct messages back from people saying uh, a cartoon affected them in that way, then that makes me really feel like it was successful. And that's the great thing about your work, though, when uh, and I've had the privilege of working with you for many years now, is you what you see it and then you see people sharing it. And what they're essentially doing in commenting alongside the share is not just, oh, yeah, this is funny, but this has made me think or act differently. I mean, not all the time, but certainly a lot of the time you make people stop and think that must feel good, right? It does feel good. I think uh, there's something in the in the medium of cartoons that's very participatory. I think people can can see a cartoon and 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 they often tell me they see themselves in the cartoon that it reflects back something to them. I really love the participatory nature of that. That it, it's um, you know it, again goes back to the the, the thing that struck me at the beginning the idea of just wanting to connect with my 35 coworkers at General Mills and feel like we're all going through something together. When I hear from people that cartoons affect them in that way, it makes me feel, again, that communal connection, but just a much larger audience that we're all collectively going through things together. And uh, no one has all the answers. And I often will draw cartoons from one year to the next that might even take contradictory points of view. And it's because uh, I think I think we're always, always constantly figuring things out. And I like the collective aspect of trying to figure it out together. Yeah, I mean, you're not in the trenches uh, with uh, co-workers anymore doing a day-to-day -day job of marketing. So how do you keep abreast and across the kind of things that will resonate with, I know it's not just marketers that you reach and work with, but it's still a huge constituency and a huge chunk, presumably, of who you're doing it for. How do you stay across what they do and what they're thinking and feeling? Well, thankfully, I'm still in the marketing trenches to a certain degree, which is in my in my studio work where I create custom cartoons. I've worked with 200 organizations now, and in some ways that's broadened my scope. My, my classic marketing training was primarily in FMCG, and then I had some opportunity to work in tech, so that gave me a few different domains and spheres. But my, but my custom cartoon work with companies in which they've used the cartoons as part of their marketing campaigns have been on just about every marketing domain you can imagine. And I love learning through those projects and through the clients that I work with, the specific nuances of their, of their organizations. I learn a lot from that. And I've also unexpectedly, I, I've, I've started to do quite a bit of public speaking and speaking at conferences, but also going inside businesses and spending a day with the business and then putting on a workshop. And I've you know, talked to 250 different businesses over the last 10 years. And I learn a lot from that. It gets me out of the studio and it gets me working with people and talking about their live issues that affect them. So I, I still draw directly from a lot of things that are happening to me or that I observe directly. And then secondhand, I try to stay on top of it. I love reading Marketing Week, uh, not only because we've had such a great relationship over the years, but because I used to live and work in the UK, and now I'm based in San Francisco, and it gives me a, a peek. Although I know a lot of the issues covered are global, there are, there's a lot about 
about uh, about the UK that I, I love to I love to still feel a part of through that. And I also, as was mentioned before, in the you know people are very nice to write me. I get I get long emails from people. I get short messages, and I often will hear specific stories. Sometimes people overshare a bit in a way that I'm not sure their organization would love knowing uh, that that someone on the outside is getting such a nuance onto some of the dysfunctions happening in their meetings. But I hear a lot directly from people of specific stories they're going through. And all of that, I feel like, is constantly kind of in my mind as I think about what to draw cartoons about. Thank you for the uh, plug there, Tom. Uh, Most appreciated. Marketing Week is the beginning and end of all all insight. I, I obviously wholeheartedly agree with you now you touched upon it that when you are creating uh you don't necessarily nail it or get it right every single time is there anything that you put out in the world that you've kind of regretted i've tried to get away from this idea that used to come up for me is that i'm only as good as my last cartoon <laughs> and it was sort of my own kind of internal imposter syndrome and it's it's a horrible it's a horrible phenomenon i think a lot of cre- creative people feel that way and I've tried to get over that and instead know that, hey, I've, I'm, I'm just putting something out every week. Sometimes I get it right, sometimes I don't. But over time, I try to just keep at it. That's the most important thing. But the ones that I've looked in retrospect, particularly when I put together book collections, the ones that, that I feel like I didn't last or didn't feel right to me were the ones where I experimented with a different style of humor that wasn't quite right for me. And I mentioned earlier the, the idea that some forms of humor are more aggressive than others. And I've occasionally, you know, played with cartoons in that space and they didn't feel right to me. And so those are the ones over time that I look back and I wince a little bit at. If I'm making fun at a specific situation rather than collectively laughing at myself and something that we're all communally facing at marketing, those are the ones that I tend to regret a bit. There was an example of an ad that that was maybe 10 years ago from an organization. I, I drew a cartoon specifically mocking that ad trying to draw a greater thought about how we can make sure we're not taking ourselves too seriously. But when I took a look at that cartoon years later, it felt very uh, much more in the poison pen end of the humorous spectrum. And so that's what I try to avoid over time. So, you know, again, I'll, I'll continue to get it wrong. Sometimes something will jump out at me as funny. And, and later on, I look at it and I thought that was more aggressive than I intended. But, uh, but that's something I just try to test and learn and evolve over time. And have you got a favorite? Is there one that you that best sums up everything that you are and everything that you want to be? There, there's one classic one I'll give, and then I want to give a quick, a quick other example, just because it's very specific. But it made me think of it knowing that I was talking with you. Um, the first one I, I I always come back to. I have a bunch of I drew a bunch of dogs around a conference table, and one of them is presenting and saying. We need to stay focused on our marketing objectives and not get distracted by every shiny new, look, squirrel. And then all the dogs are looking out the window and there's a squirrel <laughs> running by running by the window. And I just, I, I, it makes me laugh um, when I, you know, even after having drawn it myself and, and seen it a million times, partly because I, I feel like that shiny object syndrome is just a perennial constant in marketing and I'm susceptible to it too. So that, that one is one of my favorites for sure. Um, the other one that came to mind um, just in the context of this conversation was a, a cartoon I, very, I drew very early on 
Um, I called it the, the Garden of Creativity, and it was a um, it was a cartoon without any words, and it had somebody in the center of the cartoon planting a little apple tree, and then surround that character was surrounded by all these other characters and all those other characters who were sort of gardeners in this image, and they all had uh, cutting and clipping tools like a hatchet and a clippers and a lawnmower, and it, this idea of trying to be creative in a in an organization and trying to like bring something to life despite all the challenges that, that it faces. You know, it's, it's easier to critique an idea than to create one. And it became one of my favorites. And years later, when Marketing Week was doing an event and asked, uh, they, they had this great idea to create a large interactive image. And someone discovered that there was a Guinness World Record for the greatest contributions to a color by number. So I had the opportunity, they approached me to create an image for that. And I chose this cartoon, partly because it was wordless, but partly it was fun for me to imagine turning that cartoon into a color by number and then having hundreds of people color it in collectively because it became this metaphor for me of, that's in a way what we all do in organizations when we're bringing something to life, we're all trying to, to create something. It's greater by the sum of all of those touches. But mainly when we approach a creative project, uh, in a way to try to make the ideas stronger, not to sand the edges and make the ideas weaker. And I have one of my favorite uh, uh, photographs in my studio is a photo of everybody collectively drawing in that cartoon. And that, that became one of my favorites. Sounds almost philosophical uh, in its execution as much as uh, humorous. Thank you for sharing those two examples, Tom. Now, in terms of trends, and you picked up on a, the shiny new thing syndrome in marketing uh, you've been looking at those and some of the faux pas that marketers can be guilty of for 20 years i mean what's the thing that you've noted in that time that marketers keep doing that they really should probably stop doing now i suppose it's related a bit to the signing object syndrome but the the be the, the bigger the bigger trend is just simply letting tactics drive the strategy I think sometimes or frequently we come across something new or even when it's not new, we can jump right to the tactical execution and then that becomes the marketing campaign. And I think it comes over time and it, it's always an opportunity, I think, is to step back and make sure that there's a well thought out strategy of what you're trying to do and then look at the at the tactics that best support that strategy. That's an evergreen issue that keeps coming up, I, I think, particularly something something new comes along and suddenly it's written about a lot and it's in, in the marketing you know, predictions for the year and that type of thing. And suddenly the question becomes, you know, how do we do something in blockchain, for instance, rather than how are we going to build our business this year, build our brand this year, connect to consumers this year. And then out of, out of that strategic questioning then emerges, here's a specific tactical execution that can help us do that. That's probably the, one of the evergreen ones I find myself returning to again and again and again. I see uh, misfires when there's a tactics first type of approach. It remains a common theme and a constant polemic in, in marketing week. So that absolutely resonates and I'm sure will do with many people listening. Now, you've done TED Talks about the power of humour in business generally. Uh, why can humour be a creative and indeed motivating force for businesses? I think it's humour is just a great leveller. It's something that we all share. Um, there's an old vaudeville quote I've always liked that laughter is the shortest distance between two people. And I feel like that is an underappreciated business tool, whether... Uh, it's used internally in building a team 
and how uh, extended teams can communicate better, or it's used externally as a way to connect with an audience that you're trying to reach. I feel like it's something that's incredibly powerful and often underappreciated. Certainly wasn't talked about much in my own kind of business school training. Although I did have the opportunity a few years ago to get to know two professors at Stanford in the Graduate School of Business who are creating the first ever MBA level course on the power of humor in business. And they ended up being nice enough to invite me to be their cartoonist in residence for the session. So I learned a lot from that course in how they've talked about humor as a management and leadership skill in terms of how it can help leaders inspire more creativity and get teams to talk about things that are otherwise hard to talk about. So that was great, very enlightening. Um, and then more on the external marketing side, there's been a lot of research um, in particular that Kantar has done about, about uh, how humor in, in marketing communication can be particularly effective. They had something called an ad reaction study that described humor as one of the most powerful and creative enhancers for communication. And yet they've also noted how humor is on the decline in the percentage of ads that are, that are run. I find it uh, an incredibly powerful yet underappreciated tool that uh, we can all learn to cultivate a bit more. Mm. I mean, we've covered some of that work that you referred to from Kantar and talked about the need for advertising in particular to be entertaining. And one way for advertising to be entertaining is to be humorous but it's often underappreciated and undervalued i think by lots of brands who perhaps are i don't know more fixated on being creative or getting across a functional message i mean it's also for courses but would you agree humor isn't necessarily exploited or focused on as much as it could as a route to create memory frameworks and as some might describe it, mental availability. I do, I do. And of course, I'm coming at this from a cartoonist. So it's, it's sort of like, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And yet I, I find, I find uh, that there is an opportunity there that's, that's untapped. I think a, one of the biggest reasons relates to fear, a fear of, of potentially causing offense. I noted this particularly early in the pandemic, there is this sentiment I saw over and over again, that it's better to be too serious than sorry. And I feel like one of the opportunities, and one of the one of the reasons why that's there is that we don't we we sometimes think there's only one form of humor, and um, there are certain forms of humor that that can you know that can uh, misfire, but there's not only one form of humor. You know, there's there's a study uh, from a, a professor in Toronto, I believe, who observe that there are actually four main types of humor. There's, there's, there's aggressive humor, which is sometimes what people think about when they think about using humor. Aggressive humor that you're laughing at another. And I feel like in many cases, that's what gets brands wrong. And yet there are other forms of humor. There's, there's, they talk in the study talks about self-defeating and self-enhancing humor, kind of self-deprecating humor. That's sort of an, an area that brands, I think, can have some effectiveness with. And then there's affiliative humor, where you laugh uh, at ourselves, where it's a collective laughter. You know, you laugh at yourself in a self-defeating way. You know, brand is mocking itself in a way. That's one form. And then there's laughing at ourselves. We as a brand are along with the consumers going through something together and we can laugh at ourselves. And I think both of those areas are actually very rich to mine for brands and the opportunities to go down that framework 
that uh, can help you avoid some of the pitfalls that some brands have come into when they've used humor in a way that's fallen flat or has uh, has even offended. Can you think of an example, Wes, where a brand has got it right? And uh, if so, how and what they did that perhaps stood them apart? Well, there's one that comes to mind that's still a favorite from a couple of years ago, partly because it was so unexpected and such a light touch and not a very large brand. This is early in the pandemic and there's a British uh, brand called uh, Emily's Veg Crisps. And they had purchased their first ever outdoor campaign. And the timing coincided with the start of the lockdown. So it's this horrible situation. They put all this money in this basket and suddenly it's an outdoor campaign when everybody is sheltering in place. And they decided to approach that situation with humor. And it was sort of in that self-deprecating humor. You know, they could have just pulled the ad entirely and forfeited the budget. They could have tried to have a, a, a very serious message of in these unprecedented times and we're all here with you together. But instead they used humor and they had these wonderful, they had wonderful um, headlines. Uh, I remember one of them uh, said, um, typical, our first ever outdoor ad seen by a runner and one pigeon. And it was just this, this funny execution. And, uh, and you know, they got quite a lot of PR pickup in the UK around that. And I think it was a, a wonderful thing for particularly a small brand to do. Just to, you know, it was a very human moment because everybody could identify with that. And I feel like humor doesn't have to be used as a grand overarching campaign for the year. It can be used in small ways for brands just to have human moments like that. And I thought it was very effective. Thank you, Tom. That's a positive and practical point to conclude on. Thank you very much for taking part and thank you very much for your time and thanks to everybody that listened. Until next time on This Much I Learned, goodbye.